0: If you want to pump your body and expand your mind, there's only one place to go. Mind Pump. Mind Pump. With your hosts, Sal Stefano, Adam Schaefer, and Justin Andrews. Always Ready. a
1: good time with uh, Dr. Russo. This has been almost a year since we've had him on the show.
2: Yeah, almost. I didn't realize how fast uh, time it flew there, man. It, I thought it was just uh, when, after he dropped his book, but I guess he dropped his book in February. Mm-hmm of last year. So yeah, we're coming up on a year. I must yeah, recommend we
1: his book uh at least a few days a week for people with gut health questions. Healthy gut, healthy you is like that's like the gut health bible. It's oh, the yeah. one I always recommend to people. Yeah,
3: it's hi- I highly recommend it. It's helped uh, my wife tremendously. Especially the way that
2: Mike presents information, which is one of my why he's one of my favorite people to talk to is he is uh not dogmatic about anything at all and he's very careful about how he presents information Um and so I really appreciate that because it, it can especially a topic like gut health mm-hmm. can just become a little bit overwhelming um, and this is a part of the reason why we invited him down did something a little bit different in today's episode we did cover some some other topics but the big bulk of this episode was really centered around thyroid. And it was funny, he reached out to me about a month ago. And he says, Hey, Adam, you know, you know, I'd like to come on the show, and I really want to address thyroid. And right before that, like literally two days before that, Cassie had uh, emailed me and asked if we could create some more content around thyroid, because she runs the customer service side of the business. And one of the number one questions that she gets and concerns are people wanting to learn more mm-hmm. about thyroid, and so there seems to be a uptick in people being diagnosed with these this condition. And, and he's saying
1: it's misdiagnosis, right? So he's saying, especially people in his space, uh, the the wellness crew, the, the crowd, I should say. He, you know, and it's pretty revealing what he talks about. How a lot of these people are getting diagnosed with hypothyroidism when they aren't. They're 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 being prescribed these medications when they don't need to be taking them, and so that's what we talk about. We also talked about uh, we did mention red light therapy in this episode, and I want to do a correction here in the intro. Uh, I talked about, or at least I had mentioned how red light therapy has been shown to raise testosterone, and Dr. Russo said there were no human studies. Uh, there are. There was a recent one, in fact. I believe it was in I want to say 2014 or 2016 in Italy. They tested 38 men uh, and, and they divided them into groups and they treated some of them with red light therapy and the others with, without. And the red light therapy significantly increased testosterone. So there is a human study to show that and red light not therapy. Not just ram balls. Yeah, not just. In exact, you'll know when you listen to the episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it does work on, on testosterone levels. Um, it, the red light therapy that you find in the Juve uh, lights, which is Juve is one of our sponsors. Um, in fact, if you go to juve.com, J O O V V dot com forward slash mind pump, you'll get a free MAPS Prime program with the purchase of $500 or more um, and uh, free shipping.
2: So I want to say something to that too. I Rachel told me that th- it's kind of a challenge for them to uh, go back through all the purchases that they get and to find out who came from Mind Pump so they can mm-hmm. actually send over the Prime. And so, if you're somebody who goes over there and you buy uh, any of the Juve any of the Juve lights, and you're looking for your Maps Prime program, the best thing to do is actually to uh, email info at Mind Pump Media and let them know that you made that purchase. And then and we'll hook you up. And then Cassie and Rachel on the back end of our side of the business will go ahead and go do the legwork for you and, and get it over to you faster. Because we had a little bit of a delay on somebody who was buying Juve lights. We've had quite a few people buy them through uh, through Juve uh, from us, and we're waiting on their prime, and they wanted to get that as soon as possible. So if you are somebody who goes from this episode and, and makes a purchase with Juve uh, and you want your Prime uh, maps prime, make sure you email info at mindpumpmedia. Yeah.
1: And the, uh, now that we're talking about programs, I do want to remind everybody MAPS anabolic is still half off all month long. That's our flagship foundational fitness program. It's great for building muscle, uh, speeding up your metabolism. It's a great metabolism boosting program. So if you're somebody who's got met- metabolic damage, uh, maybe through too much dieting, you' uh, somebody's trying to get leaner, but it's just not working without eating low calories. Great way to speed up your metabolism is to enroll in Maps Anabolic because it's so effective at building muscle and building strength. It's fifty percent off. Go to MAPSFitnessProducts.com. dot com. Use the code RED50, RED fifty R E D five zero no space for the discount. Um, and of course, on that site is our other our other Maps fitness programs. So you can take a look at all of them, see which one works best for you. And that's pretty much it. So without any further ado, here we are talking to our good friend Dr. Mike Ruscio.
2: I know this year, so I'll tell you that. In it, and we don't have it on dates, but when it does come around, I'll make sure that you're included in conversation is Taylor is going to set up some more live events like we did. We had a lot of success when we went down to uh, San Diego, L.A. and we did like this live event thing. And that was a lot of fun. And I think is that, that like the podcast hard or different from that, different from that. We, we go How Was
4: that. Was, was that in retrospect a success?
2: I mean, it depends on how you look at what do you define as a success. Financially, no. Like, we didn't make a bunch of we, – we lost a ton of money on that. Well, but we knew that going into it. It was an investment for us and just a way that we could build and forge relationships. And, I mean, and listen to what – if you got a huge relationship, as I, I believe you did, you said before we got on here, with Mike Matthews. You guys speak on a weekly basis. Yeah. So, to, for me – that is, that's a win. That's a win because yeah. you're a good friend of ours. He's a good friend of ours. We've connected you two. You guys have, have helped each other out greatly. Yeah. And I think that you will always remember that, and so that's very valuable to me in relationship building mm-hmm, to be really. able to be. You, a, you owe us. Yeah, yeah, it's like that's what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, very, <laughs> yeah, very, yeah, very. I wasn't, I was getting there. <laughs> one day,
4: <laughs> the other, the other one, thing, we will ask, one day we may ask you yeah, 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 for yeah. a favor. That, yeah. was, that was not <laughs> Show up good.
1: with a body at your door. <laughs> <laughs> the, the
4: thing that was not good was pairing me with Jordan Shallows and Ben. Because I bunked with those two guys, and I've never felt so fucking small. Oh yeah, <laughs> like they'd be sitting at the kitchen table just talking, and I'd come out, and I'd feel like,
3: hey guys, like,
0: yeah, a, <laughs> yeah, not good for the ego, right? <laughs> no. uh, that, that was a shit. tough one.
1: Well, yeah, those guys are giant. How They're about huge.
2: how about the conversation though that we had uh, around the fire that one night? I mean, how that's why that's why I think Mike is going to Paleo
4: FX because he's he's eager as I am for another conversation like that, which is why I'm still hoping to sway you guys
2: to come out. There's show. a there's a possibility we you should think? just get on a Skype. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, I don't think you could react just like a mock fire that we're all looking at. Yeah, yeah, what what it what it was and what was really cool is this: it's a collection of uh, of a, a bunch of really intelligent people that um, share a bunch of different um, perspectives on a lot of really cool topics, and everybody is wise enough to be open minded enough to listen to everybody put their or say their argument. And right. man, what a just a great conversation to be a part of and be in. And and to me, that's worth all the money that we spent was to have moments like that, to connect other like-minded people together that can all support and help each other. And that's really what the mind pump movement has always been about for us is to elevate these people that... May not be out there uh, on, you know, in mainstream where everybody's talking about them because they, they're all about social media and they take half naked pictures, but because they <laughs> have really fucking great content yep. that more people need to hear. Here, and I, I really think to me that, that that was the real value in the podcast heart event. The event that I was talking about that I would, I think would be fun to do with you is we've discussed doing these kind of like mind pump meetups or. Basically what we do is we, we, we pop into like a sponsor's uh, store or location, mm-hmm. invite a bunch of our audience for free to come down and listen to like a live QA and we've discussed doing that like a like a mind pump and friends tour where we bring like a buddy like yourself or like a bacon greenfield or a Jordan or somebody and they're a part of the, the Q and A talk with us and That's get to true. kinda and then we kinda hang out with our audience. Yeah, we
3: just riff in person with the yeah. audience. And then awesome. we'll go party afterwards. Yeah.
2: You know what? Could be cool in in my
4: area if you're looking to do it. I don't know if this is so close to home. If Walnut Creek is so close, to no, San we Walnut. want
2: we want to do a close one. So because
4: there's there's a, a cryotherapy center in Walnut Creek. They do cryotherapy, red light therapy, uh, a few other therapies. That might be a cool spot. I mean, Crossfits are probably always a good location, also, but just something to think about.
2: Now, when you when you check out like a lot of these places that do like the red light, or what brand do you normally see pop up? Juve, and I like Juve, but. I recently interviewed Ari Witten. Are
4: you familiar with him? Is, is he, he, he wrote like the preeminent book on red light therapy. Oh, I don't. I don't mm. know who that
1: is. Photobiomodulation. Yeah. I like mm-hmm. to say that. Yeah. And, uh, it's a tongue twister. Like, I know what I'm talking like about. I those big words. <laughs>
4: yeah. Um, yeah. But he wrote a really great evidence based book. I haven't read the whole thing, I, I've thumbed through it. But um, he feels there's a few other lights that you may get a, a similar or maybe even better bang for your buck. And that's no disparagement
2: to Juve. It's just they're um, on the higher end as far as pricing. Yeah,
4: and then it may be more light than you need. Like, I was doing three panels, total body, and according to Witten, you know, it's it's more than you may need. And for some people, that may actually be too much of a hormetic stressor. for them Oh, so in year.
2: other words, what you're saying, and yeah. I was wondering this, this is kind of a cool topic, I would because I don't know if you've seen, but Juve has just recently came out with, like, their small little panel. And, and that's essentially what Witten was saying, which is <clears> – <throat> the the distance away from the light
4: dictates the effect essentially the farther away you are the more of a superficial effect you're going to get the closer you are the more of a deeper effect you're going to get so if you're doing Mm. skin slash anti-aging with the platinum led device which is what i've been using you want to be according to witten about 10 to 14 inches away okay i'm assuming if you want to get something like joint or muscle recovery or pain reduction you want to be i'm guessing maybe six inches away okay um so it's cool to have that multi-panel juve light, but it's really hard to kind of get everything configured to get the dose mm-hmm. that you're looking to get in terms of the, the, the tissue
2: application. Well, I would imagine that- Do you
1: think that's splitting hairs though? Yeah.
2: And, and I also would imagine, Mike, wouldn't it, if if you got more than enough, it's not technically hurting you, is it? I mean- Actually, so according to some of what, again, I'm just referencing Witten
4: because I'm not an expert no, here. No, no, no. I, I appreciate that. People, I appreciate the conversation. Um there, there may be a biphasic response and according to him, some researchers think there's more or less to that. I think I actually overstimulated myself with using too much red light.
1: Mm. What, did that, what happened? What did it feel like?
4: I just got really tired. I had bags under my eyes and I was really fatigued and I was like, "Why the? You know, what the hell happened? And I, I thought I was overtraining or this or that and I, I'm still not sure that that was the case because there was a few other variables so I have to kind of go back and isolate out those variables and run the experiment mm-hmm. again and see what happens but... <clears throat> there there may be about 10 to 15% of people who are what's known as hyper responders where they really could run the risk of doing of overdoing it. And it makes sense if you think about fasting or exercise, doing too much of that for any person and too much of that that threshold kind of
2: changes from person to person, but doing too much of any stressor. Could eventually lead to right. a negative well, right. effect, right? Isn't yeah. it supposed to be parasympathetic in the in the first place, though? Isn't it?
1: it well, it's so. So is uh, so is sleep. But if you sleep too much, it probably can cause problems. So is uh, you know going in a sauna. Sauna is parasympathetic until it's not, and then it becomes sympathetic. If you're like pushing for time, okay. So I think there's there's always a, a, a sweet spot. There's always a right dose. <clears throat> right. That's a very. This is a very good conversation because uh, people. We t- especially in Western societies, we tend to think of everything as, a, as a, if some is good, more, more is better. better yeah. And then not only that, but we, we also don't take our own personal context into account. So like in, in the regard, like an exercise, for example, you know, if I never exercise at all the right amount... Um, it's going to be a lot less than if I uh, have a, you know high tolerance for it. Right. Uh, this is true for any stressor, sunlight, and uh, in, in maybe even red light. I, I, I would think this is, this is true for anything. So I, this is not. Um, so along these lines, I had another question that you. So if I'm if the, to
2: get the benefits of it, do I necessarily need to have it on a certain spot? Now I know when I'm like trying to address like my psoriasis or some of that, then obviously I would probably want to shoot on there. But if I'm just wanting to get.
1: The systemic effect.
2: Yeah, the systemic effect of it. Does it necessarily need to be on a certain spot, or I could just be taking it? As far as I understand it, it's going to be site specific for the application, at
4: least semi site specific. Right. So if you want to, if you have, let's say, pain and inflammation on the posterior side of your body, but you're shining light on the anterior a- anterior side of your body, then it's, as far as I understand, it, not likely you're going to see the optimal effect mm-hmm. if you're not shining. Did it you at at
1: see all. the test? Have you seen the testosterone studies on them? That. According to... Wit- and, and when I check some of
4: the references, seems to be the most poorly supported scientifically. Really? One was in ram testicles. I think a couple were in mice. I, I don't think there's any human data. There isn't. Okay. Because um, there so was one study that someone... Fucking Greenfield. Said,
1: well, there was, well <laughs> we have a bu- I mean, this is, not, this is obviously anecdote. We have a buddy who raises testosterone. He was measuring it, uh, and that's the one variable he included. But I... I there was a someone cited a study that showed that you get a more of a testosterone boost from shining it on your testicles versus shining it on your body. Was that the RAM study that you're referring to? Do you know?
4: I'm assuming it was RAM. Okay. Uh, I mean, the one you're referring to. Because it sounds like you're describing a human study where you're dis- discerning between body and testicle shining. Is it, that what you're
1: saying? They, there was, uh, and you know, I should pull up the studies. Uh, there was a study that showed that there was a testosterone boost probably from- probably had a producer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it on the, maybe it was an animal study. I guess there might not be human ones. That's interesting. I don't believe there are any human okay. studies.
4: And you have to be careful.
1: We don't count Ben with, Greenfield <clears throat> with yeah. things like that.
2: <laughs> but, you know,
4: I, I have no problem with someone isolating variables and, and trying it. Yeah, but I just yeah. think we have to be careful not to say, you know, are you a guy with low testosterone? Mm-hmm. Here's, you know. Here's, the, Here's next, the magic
1: bullet. The next thing to do, yeah. Are you are finding, similar to ram balls? Yeah. Are, yeah. are you finding now that, uh, you know, because you wrote the book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, you talk, you've talked a lot uh, about the microbiome and gut health. Are you finding at all now that the space is becoming, where they're blaming it on everything or saying this is the root cause of everything? Or do you think that's more, that is continue to be accurate? Yeah,
4: I, I think the, well, it depends on who you ask, right? Because there's always going to be zealots in any group. So there are... Definitely likely some zealots in the gut space. Um, but I, I do think it's, it's a fairly defensible statement to say, start with your gut and then reevaluate. The mm. challenge, I think, is when someone's done a, a fairly good trial of the available gut therapies, they haven't seen optimal results, and they just keep on doing the same thing over and over or harder and harder, and they don't take a lateral look at, like we'll talk about today, at, for example, thyroid to see if there may be something, askew there that needs to be addressed. So I do think it's a it's a tenable statement to make, but no one thing is a panacea. But the one area that I, I do feel people will see the most return on their investment in terms of time, effort, and energy would be their gut
1: health. Okay. The, the reason why I say that is anytime in, in in the health and fitness space that I've seen something come out that is supported by some science, the next thing I know, like for example, oh, study shows that ketogenic diets help with this particular condition. And, you know, the study shows that ketogenic diet helps with that. And the next thing you know, there's keto cereal for kids, you know, right. keto socks. Like, it's like, okay, what's going on here? I, I see probiotics now in everything. Probiotic so, water. Yes, I, I think you are yeah. seeing
4: that with probiotics where now there, there's kind of this one-up effect where everyone's trying to one-up everyone else with the latest and greatest claim about the mechanism of a probiotic and why it's better than the others. And yes, you are seeing that, I think, with probiotics where you know, if there's one novel finding about one strain, then a company, you know, tends to take that one finding, package a whole probiotic around it, claim it to be the psoriasis probiotic or the rheumatoid arthritis probiotic. But I saw this this same evolution when it came to probiotics for constipation, where, mm. and the, actually, same thing with urinary tract infections too where there was one study initially because it was the only one that was done looking at a probiotic and constipation. And so then everyone was shouting from the rooftops, this is the probiotic for constipation. And I said to myself, well, I'm willing to bet a fairly large sum that within six months to a year, there will be another study in constipation with probiotics with a different formula also showing benefit. And what do you know? I think today there have been three with different formulas all showing benefits in constipation Mm. and about three trials with different types of probiotics at least three trials showing the ability to reduce urinary tract infection uh, in women so so what led you to believe that and what's your takeaway from that what led me to believe that is there there's this propensity to make things more complicated than they have to be and there's a propensity to take one preliminary finding and expand upon it and, and yeah and and make that look like this is the best you know product for mm-hmm. whatever and that's fine i guess that's kind of the company's Job Because they're, they're trying to bring these products to market and they're trying to market them. Fine. But that's why you should always cross-reference your recommendations with mm-hmm. a clinician so that you get a filtered perspective, not just going right to the probiotic manufacturer, but also looking at a clinician who can say, yeah, I mean, that's a decent claim, but it's really a little bit of, you know, fanfare and you can probably cover your bases for constipation and X and Y and Z with these two broad spectrum probiotics. Now,
1: is there anything mm. that people that you see people doing now with all this, you know, all this new uh, energy and uh, around probiotics? Is there anything that you see people doing now that is harmful, like any practices with these types of things? where you are like, okay, you're probably better off not supplementing with this many probiotics or with this type if you have this type of condition. Are you seeing anything like that? Well,
4: to, to maybe shift gears a little bit, the thing that I'm seeing right now that is most alarming to me is the incorrect overdiagnosis of hypothyroidism. Really? With, with people. And there's a little bit of a, of a backstory here. So gut is my primary area focused, as you know. But I also keep an eye on thyroid because it's something that's important to my patients. And there is this fairly important connection between the gut and the thyroid. So the thyroid literature is one I've been watching fairly closely now for for several years. And as I started fact-checking some of the claims that you see in functional and alternative medicine, I started saying to myself, geez, you know, a lot of this doesn't seem to be supported. And in fact, a lot of the the recommendations that are being made for, for diagnosing hypothyroidism and for treating hypothyroidism are actually in conflict to what the majority of the data says. Give me an example of that. So in terms of how you diagnose Mm -hmm. hypothyroid, there's this feeling in functional medicine that we should be using these narrow ranges, right? So conventional ranges are too wide, it said, Mm -hmm. and our functional ranges are more narrow, and those are, quote-unquote, better ranges. You know, it it turns out that that's not really the
1: case, And, and there's... This And you're talking about ranges of actual thyroid hormones.
4: Ranges of, of TSH and T4, or, or specifically TSH and free T4, which are used to diagnose hypothyroid. Mm-hmm. So if you have flagged high according to the lab range, according to the conventional range, high TSH paired with low free T4, that diagnoses hypothyroidism. Now, the functional medicine community thinks that your TSH, instead of should not be above 4.5, which is where most of the conventional labs draw the line, Functional medicine says you shouldn't be above 2.5. Now, where do they get that from? Well, it turns out that when you're giving someone who has hypothyroidism, thyroid hormone medication, and you're trying to track their lab values, you want to see their TSH get to 2.5 or below, ideally but that doesn't diagnose someone who's not on medication as hypothyroid if they're just naturally above 2.5. Mm. Does that make sense? This reminds me of like mm. the uh, cholesterol statin hustle in a sense. Yeah. Like yep. that. So, you know, I, I, I as I started fact checking this, I started realizing, you know, that's, that's not correct. And, and what does the data there actually show? So, to to answer that question, we have to understand what subclinical hypothyroidism is. So we talked about TSH has to be high and free T4 has to be low to diagnose hypothyroid. And just a back up for the audience, TSH is the hormone that your brain sends to your thyroid gland. To make it, to tell it to produce hormone. To blood. tell it to produce hormone. And then T4 is what the gland actually makes. So that's how these two interface. Now, if your gland is not producing hormone, you get more and more signal from the brain down to the gland. It's like you're yelling down, mm-hmm. and so that's the TSH goes higher and higher and higher. Your thyroid is yelling louder and louder and louder to try to get the appropriate amount of hormone out of the gland. So, there's a condition known as subclinical hypothyroidism, where you have elevated TSH. So you might be five, six, seven, nine, and you have that paired with normal free T four. So that's known as subclinical hypothyroid. And there's a lot of literature there. And what the totality of the evidence suggests is that most people do not need to be on thyroid medication, nor do they derive any benefit from being on thyroid medication when they are subclinical hypothyroid.
1: Now, question about that. Could that be, because this makes me think of how um, people's bodies respond to androgens. Like they find that uh, in in some many cases, as men get older, fit men get older, their testosterone levels will decline at a much slower rate than most men, but they'll still start to decline a little bit. But they also find that their receptor density increases. So although their, their testosterone may be a little lower, because they have increased uh, amount of receptors, the effect is the same, right? It's like they're utilizing more of their testosterone. Sure. Would that be could that be something in that case where their tsh is uh, is is super high because although their thyroid their active t4 is is normal maybe they don't have enough receptors so their body's perceiving it as low
4: yes and and also there could be another argument made that your body is pretty good at adapting to what you have available so you could even make the argument that if you don't have quite the amount of T4 that your body would like to have, ideally your receptors could become more sensitive to to try to to get get more more out of that. But how we answer that is, do people who have subclinical hypothyroidism, do they benefit? Mm. Do they have less death, less cardiovascular disease, less depression, less fatigue, less insomnia, less joint pain? And the answer is no. There's an exception there for pregnant, not pregnant, for, for women who have a history of infertility then treating that has shown to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And in those who are really young, in their teens and and maybe early 20s, then they may derive a small Mm -hmm. amount of benefit. But you also said something super high. Having a TSH that is, so the cutoff, remember, is you don't want to be above Mm 4.5. Having a TSH of 5 all the way up to 10, that's considered pretty acceptable. So if that subclinical hypothyroidism, that TSH gets to above 10, then someone may derive benefit from going on hormone. Okay. Right. But what happens with a lot of people is they go see a functional provider. I'm tired. I'm depressed. And I'm so a little they're bit, combining it with symptoms. And I'm, and I'm, well, I mean, there's usually symptoms that accompany, sure, right? So sure. you're not usually getting lab testing done unless there's a reason for it. Sure. And so if someone's presenting with symptoms and the clinician does a workup and they say, Oh, your TSH is 5.6. Hmm. We need to put you on thyroid
1: medication. Even though they're, they're free, even one. though their T4 is. Yeah.
4: And this is happening way too often. And and the, being candid here, the shitty thing is, is that these people are one, being told that they have a disease, hypothyroidism, which they do not, mm-hmm. right? That is subclinical hypothyroidism and hypothyroidism are totally different. Mm-hmm. And two, they're being put on a medication that they don't really need. And why that sucks is because these people, I'm seeing enough of these people now come in years later, never having had received any benefit from the medication being on the medication for years, and now they're wanting to get off it and wish they were never on it to begin with. So,
1: and does there does, does a uh, do you get a negative feedback loop from going on it? No. Okay. No.
4: And it, so, one study has looked at that, and we can come back to that in a second. And, and please remind me because I don't want to forget. That, but I just I want to paint that initial picture where I started seeing this this context, and so when <laughs> when people were coming in diagnosed. With hypothyroidism from anyone other than a, a very conventional inside the box kind of cautious endocrinologist, then I would double check
3: mm.
4: if, if the provider was integrative, alternative, functional, natural, whatever. And I mean, no disparagement to that community, right? But this is just what I was thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Because I know that more progressive lab assessment accompanies that paradigm of, of, of practice. Mm-hmm. So I started seeing that Patients were being told they were hypothyroid when they actually weren't. Because I, I, I would have patients bring in their lab work from before they went on the medication. Bring me labs that diagnosed you as, quote-unquote, hypothyroid.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And I'll, when I would look at them, you would clearly see these people in, in an alarming number of cases were not hypothyroid.
2: Mm-hmm. So, And this is coming more so from the functional medicine, not so much from the traditional Western Correct. medicine side. Okay. Correct. Yeah. So,
4: recently there was a study published in Greece looking at 291 patients who had an ambiguous hypothyroid diagnosis. They found that 60% of those patients were not in fact hypothyroid. 60. Yeah, that's massive. That's a large percentage. So not only that, but I have the clinician's newsletter that we publish monthly. And, you know, now that we're going on almost two years, the doctors in the in the group are starting to pick these things out, and I'm getting emails from some of these doctors saying, "This is getting out of hand. I am having to undiagnose people with hypothyroidism who don't actually have it."
1: Hmm. And now all these patients, when they're going on, because like you said, they're going in there for a reason. They have symptoms. I'm tired, fatigued, maybe classical symptoms of low thyroid. They go in, normal you know, normal T4. TSH is, you know, 5.6 or whatever, a little bit elevated. They go on thyroid. Do they subjectively feel better from that?
4: So that's one of the other important aspects of this, this whole conversation. kind of conversation, which is I've noticed a lot of these patients, I would argue the majority – do not derive any symptomatic benefit from going on. In fact, some of them actually even feel worse. I was
1: going to say, maybe more anxiety. And <clears throat> well, well,
4: what, I was and- going
3: to say, yeah, is the anxiety. Cause I know like for my wife specifically, they diagnosed like hypothyroidism as she went in there with like massive anxiety issues. And that was something that it was either you uh, an antidepressant that was thought to, to prescribe or, uh, you know, hypothyroidism uh, medication. Right. Right. So,
4: <laughs> Even you know the problems now are compounding because there's another, what I think is is a is a misnomer in integrative and in progressive circles of of medicine and healthcare, which is T4 plus T3 combination medications like Armour Thyroid or Nature are better than T4 alone like Levothyroxine. Mm. And there's some data to support that, but it's a small number of people. So what happens is a small number of people, maybe 15% of people who don't ideally respond to levothyroxine or Synthroid, T4 alone, Mm -hmm. felt better when they went on T4 plus T3. So natural medicine conflates that to say everyone should be on T4 plus T3 because it's better. Mm. So these same people who aren't actually hypothyroid then go on T4 plus T3. And the, the addition of the T3 has more of a tendency to exacerbate anxiety, insomnia, maybe even fatigue in in some cases. So this is a serious problem. And and these. so this all tied home for me about a month ago, which is when I reached out to Adam and said, Mm. listen, I need to come back down and just get some of this off my chest because Mm. I've been talking about this to my audience, but it's getting so bad now, I wanted to announce it to a lateral audience. Mm. So this patient came in, she had been working with, you know, quote unquote, famous thyroid doctor who literally wrote a book on hypothyroidism is, is fairly well known. And she told me that she was diagnosed hypothyroid by her. And then she was on medication under her care for about eight months. All the while she felt terrible. She felt worse on the medication, but this doctor had a hard, a hard time. And I, I want to give the doctor the benefit of the doubt, but The first medication she goes on, she feels worse. Changes the dose, she feels worse. Tries a different medication, she feels worse. And I believe she ended up trying three different thyroid medications the whole time she felt worse. When I looked at her lab work, she wasn't even subclinical hypothyroid, right? She was normal thyroid by any discernible measure. I think her TSH was like 3.8 and her free T4 was normal. And on the lab, she writes next to it, call in for your armor prescription. I mean, this It's just getting out of hand. Now, the same case, she's been with me for about three months. We've been working predominantly on her gut, and all of her symptoms except for one are either gone or markedly improved in just three months, and she's not on the medication anymore. And she no longer thinks she has hypothyroidism, which she does not.
1: It sounds like a case of, uh, you know, I'm a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, what
2: did you do for her to to start? What were some? Of the, what were some? Obviously, you're focusing on the gut. What were some of the the uh, invaders or the culprits uh, that were causing these these symptoms? Well, um,
4: if my memory serves me correctly, she benefited quite a bit from a low FODMAP diet, which for people who have gastrointestinal issues like, I, I believe she had bloating and maybe diarrhea a low FODMAP diet can be helpful. And also it's been shown that people who have those gut symptoms also tend to be more fatigued and more anxious and more depressed.
3: Mm -hmm. What does a low FODMAP diet look like just for the audience?
4: Well, um, a low FODMAP diet is going to reduce certain mainly vegetables, but also some fruits that are high in prebiotics and feed gut bacteria. And so this gal, what she thought was hypothyroidism was actually an offshoot of an inflamed gut. And she likely had too much bacteria in her gut Mm. now there is a connection actually not not to get too deep but there is a connection showing that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or there's too much bacteria in the gut and hypothyroidism go hand in hand Mm -hmm. one one large analysis in in over 1800 patients found the number one predictor of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth was hypothyroidism so there is a connection this gal did not have hypothyroidism but they do tend to go together and, and sometimes where someone's lingering symptoms are coming from is not the thyroid. It's actually a problem in the gut.
1: Now it's interesting because I've had clients in the past who have gotten diagnosed with thyroid issues, but had normal TSH, normal thyroid, but they got tested for antibodies mm-hmm. and other things. And so and the way they explained it to me was, you know, although my thyroid's normal, my body's not using it, and that's why I need to go on and take yeah. extra thyroid. Is that... Is, Incorrect. So there's no, there's no viability in that? Well, your, your thyroid antibodies...
4: So thyroid antibodies and hormone levels are on two different tracks. They, there's some interconnectivity between them, but just because you have high thyroid antibodies does not mean you're going to have problems with your thyroid hormones. And the way this works is the majority of hypothyroidism is caused by thyroid autoimmunity or high levels of thyroid antibodies yes that is true but you know here's here's the thing that really irritates me okay so most people who are hypothyroid the cause is thyroid autoimmunity <clears throat> but if you look at an entire population and you take all the people who have thyroid autoimmunity only nine to 19 percent of those people according to one study will ever become hypothyroid Hmm. Does that make sense? So what ends up happening is because all of the people who have hypothyroid or most of the people who have hypothyroid that causes thyroid autoimmunity, people are told, well, if you have thyroid autoimmunity, you will become hypothyroid. Hmm. And that's not true. You actually hmm. have a small probability, a probability that we can intervene against mm-hmm. and improve, hmm. but they, they don't directly go together.
1: So, this is, so here's a question that begs a question. <laughs> Let's say you do have thyroid autoimmunity. You're not hypothyroid. What does thyroid uh, autoimmunity symptoms look like and how do you work with that? You're obviously not going to give them thyroid unless they're hypothyroid. So
4: So this is where we get into, I think, a promising area where I think alternative medicine does a great job if they handle the conversation with the patient correctly.
1: Mm.
4: Right. If you say, oh, you have thyroid antibodies, that means you're going to be hypothyroid unless you never have any gluten and you do X, Y, and Z and take these handfuls of supplements for the rest of your life that's the wrong way to handle this because the actual story is, okay, yes, you have thyroid autoimmunity that increases the probability that you will become hypothyroid. But the good news is that's about 10 to 20% risk. It's not a high risk. So, I want you to be aware of that. I want us to work together to do whatever we can do to decrease that probability, but I don't want you to become nervous, upset, and stressed out thinking you have this ticking time bomb with a high probability of going off. Mm. There are a number of things that you can do. A paleo diet or maybe a paleo low FODMAP diet, they're they're just two different iterations of of kind of the same diet, has loosely, I'm, I'm speaking a little bit loosely here, but One study showed a 200-point drop in thyroid autoimmunity using a paleo diet, although the sample I think was a bit biased. And another study showed about a 40 to 44% reduction in thyroid antibodies from using a a paleo-like diet. So diet alone can get you there. There's been a number of studies showing vitamin D can help lower antibodies, a number of studies showing selenium can help, as can CoQ10 and magnesium. So Just some dietary changes plus a nutrient cocktail can get you pretty darn far with this. And the final kind of cherry on top, although the the data here are much more preliminary, is treating any kind of infection in the gut. There's been one study in Italy showing a marked reduction in thyroid antibodies when treating H. pylori and those who had H. pylori in the stomach. And a case study that one of the doctors from our newsletter group is, is writing up where a patient had non-responsive antibodies and the only thing that got her antibodies to respond was treating a gut infection. So, you know, that, that's what we can do preventatively to make sure or, or decrease that 10 to 20% probability down to hopefully closer 5%. But it's important that people understand it's not a death sentence. And, and what the unfortunate thing that happens is people are told... <clears throat> Well, you can never have any gluten and right. So they have this whole kind of like hard nosed line and then people walk around thinking I have a disease. I've got to be really careful and I could picture they're probably, you know, constantly having their mind drift off to this and they're you know, doing these intermittent searches on Google and they're really stressed out about it. And that's not how the conversation should be handled because it it imbues fear into someone where it really doesn't need to be there. We want to be proactive and do what we can, but we don't want to do it. In this, you know, realm of fear,
1: we can't, and we can't over overstate that either. uh, How big of a role that plays in health, because people hear, oh, you don't want to be fearful just because it's you don't want to be stressed out. But here's the deal, like, here's a great example. Uh, I'll use Doug as an example. Recently, he had this sleep app that measured his sleep, how what time he fell asleep, the quality of sleep that he had, and all that stuff. He turned it on, and he was monitoring his sleep and. because he had it on, he was very conscious about wanting to have better sleep. Had terrible sleep for two <laughs> yeah. weeks. Yeah. He had to turn it off, and then he got great sleep. The right. irony and of it, yeah. it is. And there was another study that was done. There was a study that was done on people who did these uh, genetic tests, these like twenty-three andMe tests. Mm. And people would get these tests and see that it would say you have a higher, you know, propensity for this potential and this potential, and that would then cause people. To get sick because of the stress associated, so it can't be right. overstated that if you you test somebody with you know thyroid antibodies, which now you're saying will increase their risk of having of going hypothyroid by nine to nineteen percent, and being like ah, you got antibodies, you got your hypothyroid, like that's not cool. That that'll that'll totally decrease their quality of life. And
4: happens all the time.
1: Wow. So what, is this just one of those cases of hard to? hard to diagnose symptoms, you know, being given this this easy answer? Because like, think of all the symptoms. What are the symptoms of hypothyroid? Like fatigue? What are some of the classic well, ones? One of the,
4: one of the challenges is, is that the symptoms are, are fairly broad, non-specific. So mm. they're going to, you know, if you, and I'll throw them out here in a second, but if you throw out the symptoms of that could potentially be attributed to hypothyroid. So many people will perk up because
1: almost anyone's going <laughs> to yeah. have at least one of those. I bet you'll hit us all in this room. So fatigue,
4: fatigue, depression, constipation, weight gain, um, thinning hair, dry skin, accelerated aging. I know it's my thyroid. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean there there there's potentially insomnia. So there, but that's you can. Correlate those to IBS, right? You can correlate those to, to food intolerances. You can correlate those to many things. Oh,
2: lack of sleep.
4: Lack of, yeah, lack just of getting just,
1: fucking old. Yeah. Shitty, <laughs> shitty diet. I right. can't lose weight. Shitty my genetics. No, it's not the donuts that you have I, I
4: just want to make one quick note for people. Um, we've been working on putting together kind of a, a quick start guide for my book. And one of the things that we've added into the quick start guide is a, a thyroid kind of like like a thyroid protocol. Mm -hmm. So um, if you go to com slash gut quiz, you can take a quiz, and that quiz will help you determine if you should do just a quick start guide for your gut or if you should do the quick start guide for your gut plus some thyroid support. Oh, that's good. uh, And there's also actually, there's a couple additional questions I added for women only to know if they need a little bit of female hormone support. Mm. Um, So that will help people because I understand listening to this, if you're new to the conversation, it's like, whoa, right? Mm. So what I did was I took the questions that most tightly correlate to gut problems, thyroid problems, and female hormone problems. And it's a self-assessment. And then the, the, Quiz will grade itself essentially and tell you, do the gut quick start guide or do the gut plus thyroid quick start guide or do the gut plus female hormones
1: mm. uh, quick start now guide. is what are the connections or correlations between thyroid just speaking on women now, thyroid and issues with progesterone and estrogen, for example, mm. are there any? Do we see any relationships there where, you know, I hear a lot about estrogen dominance. That's a big one, right? Mm -hmm. Where a lot of women are saying, oh, you know, I have estrogen dominance, all these symptoms. Do we also see a correlation with uh, thyroid issues as well?
4: There is a correlation in terms of we know that female hormones and thyroid hormones both impact one another. And one of the areas that I I also think can cause thyroid symptoms or what looks like thyroid symptoms is actually a female hormone imbalance. Because think of a lot of the same symptoms, right? Fatigue, depression, anxiety. Those can also be attributed to female hormone imbalances. Mm. We know that progesterone increases a woman's body temperature, which is why you can use a, a body temperature chart to track ovulation. Mm-hmm. And that's likely because I believe progesterone helps to facilitate fr- the free fraction of thyroid hormones. So um, progesterone helps to make thyroid hormone more bioavailable.
1: Oh, okay. Does it does it convert T3 to T4?
4: I don't know if it's the conversion. I can't recall if it's a conversion or if it just helps decrease uh, thyroid hormone binding globulin Got it. and Increases the free fraction or maybe both. And then from an outcome perspective, we do know that women who have problems with fertility, is kind of tangential association, and have that subclinical hypothyroidism do see improved fertility when going on thyroid hormone. Mm. So there's kind of this bi-directional relationship between the two.
1: Okay. And so increasing progesterone could help with thyroid type symptoms that may not be related to thyroid. It may be related to progesterone.
4: Right. And that's one of the challenging things is that for whatever reason, it seems that thyroid conditions are so marketable right well the,
1: especially the weight loss depression right yeah. energy and like, so I, the, I would like those right
4: right and so the, the thing that concerns me is someone has those symptoms they're looking for help and they just get stuck in that circle of thyroid treatments and a lot of these patients if they take a quick stop at gut and maybe also a quick stop at female hormone support their symptoms are gone
1: mm. now you, you you did say that there's no there isn't a negative feedback loop when you take thyroid so no, th- no, there, there is a negative feedback. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So in, in that study
4: in Greece that we were talking about earlier that found 60% of patients were not hypothyroid, mm-hmm. they found a few very encouraging things. So good news, more good news, which is the length of time a subject was on thyroid hormone, did not dictate their success in being able to come off it.
1: Oh, okay. So that's really encouraging. Really? Yes. And how long were the? Do you know how long the longest ones were on there?
4: I, I'm assuming. I mean, probably close seven to ten years. I, I don't.
1: Wow, I don't really? Know. I
4: don't. But I don't know if that was reported. I'm, I'm just guesstimating there. But well, no, that's I
1: mean, that's phenomenal because I know uh, for other hormones, that's not the case. Like women will go on birth control for years and many times coming off after being on for years takes longer to get your body to, to, to get ba- balanced out. If a man stays on testosterone for long periods of time, the odds that he'll have to stay on testosterone are much higher. But you're saying the study is showing that with thyroid, people were on it for a long time. They went off, body bounced back. wasn't.
4: Yeah, and I, I question some of those findings with, with men and with women because you have to factor into this. If a woman already has female hormone imbalance symptoms – not, not all women who go on birth control do, but let's let's say mm-hmm. a fair subset do at 19. Mm-hmm. And then they try to come off at 29 and get pregnant. The chances are that they're less healthy, unless they've really been doing some work, at 29 than they were at 19. Good point. So there's age and, and wear and tear that could be associated. And the same thing I think may apply with males and I've been following some of the work of um, Dr. I believe his first name is Paul, but last name is Turek. He's in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He's actually really sharp. If you want to have a male hormone expert on the podcast, I would say have on Turek because I've been really impressed, T-U-R-E-K, with his work in testosterone and male health. Um, And he cites a a study in, in cyclers where even if you go on testosterone, if you go on testosterone after starting HCG, you can maintain your endogenous testosterone production. Um, So So he
2: actually encourages, because there's some people that that speak against that. So he encourages HCG alongside with with testosterone. Not
4: necessarily, but... You know, if you start testosterone first and then go on HCG, you won't be able to rescue your endogenous production, apparently. But if you go on HCG first and then start on testosterone, you can maintain your endogenous production.
2: Interesting. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I and want it, to look that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, yeah I'm really interested. It was a, a study in cyclers, apparently. The problem, the problem is, is uh, a lot of the people that I've known um, and read about who've used testosterone use these just insane super physiological doses. Sure. And so- I would assume, and this I don't know this for sure, but I would assume, and I would bet money that there's also a little bit of a dose-dependent effect. Like you know, oh, if you yeah. go on testosterone replacement therapy, what is that, a hundred milligrams a week receptor, or less?
4: Receptor down regulation with any hormone is going to be an issue after
1: a while. Yeah, and athletes are going on five, ten times that amount, and then they're staying on for a long periods of time. They don't go off, so I would assume. Now, what about receptor down regulation for thyroid? Since we were on that topic, is there any evidence that that could also happen? Because my fear would be. If I was somebody that got misdiagnosed with a hypothyroidism, like some of the people you're talking about, and I'm taking thyroid, or, or maybe I'm not taking thyroid, maybe I'm, I have all the symptoms of it, and I got this guy over here who's you a know, progressive functional medicine person who's saying, I think you're hypothyroid. I've got another person like you saying, well, you're probably not, even though your TSH is high. Is there any evidence to show, well, maybe my, my thyroid's normal, but maybe my receptors are just for, so, for whatever reason, I just have a low receptor density. There,
4: there might be I haven't looked at that, um, but I, you know, I think we can draw an inference when we look at I feel like it's a stretch. right. Um, well, we can draw an inference when we look at the subclinical hypothyroid literature because that, that's the best evidence, I think, when, when someone isn't officially diagnosed with hypothyroid but they're being told that they might be, mm. right? The best model we can look at is subclinical hypothyroidism, meaning these people have high TSH and normal T4. What happens? And there doesn't seem to be any significant correlation to death, to heart disease, some evidence showing elevation of, of blood lipids. Um, so that, that is something to be aware of.
1: And there could also be some mechanism that we're completely unaware of. Like right. why, why is your brain you know, pushing out more TSH if your thyroid is normal, could be something totally different.
4: Or it could just mean that your thyroid has perhaps accrued a little bit of wear and tear. And so you need a scotch more signaling to have the same level of hormones as everybody else. Would that be the worst thing? No. Like, this it's might be actually a pretty
1: elegant signaling mm-hmm. system if you think about it. Yeah. I mean,
4: you know, if this might be a bad example, but if you had three parents with three kids and you're all trying to get your kid to come home for dinner, and one says, Timmy, come home. The other says, Sarah, come home. And the third says, Johnny, come home. And Johnny doesn't come home. Then you have to go, all right, Johnny, come home. <laughs> yeah. Would that be the worst thing in the world? You have, to, you have to yell a little bit louder to get Johnny to come home? Nah. I mean, that's I mean, it's kind of a shitty analogy. I get that. But I mean, that, that's that's <laughs> kind of what we're looking at. It's not the worst thing in the world if you have a little bit higher of a TSH to get you to the same level of free T4 as everybody else.
1: Hmm. And, and we can speculate all day, but I think – I think what you're saying is, I mean, I I think I fully agree with you because we tend to look at uh, symptoms and look for the simple answer. And the simple answer in that case would be, you need thyroid. Let's give you some thyroid versus the complex answer, which would be, let's look at your diet. Let's look at your sleep. Let's look at your lifestyle. And it could be all these other things. So you have these symptoms. Thyroid is normal. TSH is a little high rather than going in that direction.
2: Do you have cases where someone is actually does have a thyroid issue or condition, right? That's with hyper or hypo and you actually address gut stuff and that solves the problem that solves or fixes it.
4: Yes. Um, we, we published, I say yes, because I'm trying to think of which one of, of the many is the best one to showcase, but I think Laura and, and we did a, a video conversation with Laura. It's available on her website She was able to cut her thyroid hormone medication dose in half while sleeping better, having less joint pain, better skin, and losing weight. So you can see significant improvements in a multitude of symptoms, including the thyroid picture and and the thyroid medication dose, if you improve someone's gut health. Part of why I think that is, is because the uh, the thyroid medication that you're taking that's absorbed in your small intestines and so if that's an inflamed mess, mm. you may need more of the hormone than you that's
1: pretty straightforward
4: actually appear to and also if you're inflamed ostensibly you have a harder time converting and successfully using that hormone once it gets into your blood and into the periphery of your body
1: mm. are there any uh any potential dangers of taking thyroid when you don't need it. I know we talked about the, yes. Well, what are they?
4: Mainly cardiovascular. Um, and this is the one symptom I forgot earlier. Remember when I said people go on thyroid hormone and they might be anxious or have insomnia or fatigue. Sure. Heart palpitations is another. Mm-hmm. And you know, this connects us to the whole debate about should I take T4 plus T3 or just T4?
1: You know, in the, in the bodybuilding community, uh, if they, the number one thing that they'll try to get their hands on, because bodybuilders use thyroid uh, pre-contest, sometimes get lean, and uh, and they'll always try to get their hands on, uh, is it Cytomel? Is that mm-hmm. the one? That's yeah. that's T4, right? T3, T3. Excuse me. Um, uh, which one's the active one? Is it T4 or T3? T3, T3. So they'll try and get that one, and if they can't get that one, that's the that's the one everybody wants. Then they'll go for the one that has both right. uh, T3 and T4. But the, the active one is that they always want to get their hands on, because that's mm-hmm. the one that. That works or whatever the most. Sure. So, so go ahead.
4: So there, there's debate regarding, should you go on T4 alone or T4 plus T3? And let me just clarify by saying, I don't care, right? What I care is what the evidence shows, right? So I don't approach this, this conversation trying to reason my way into the belief that I want to come away with. What most of the evidence shows is that people will do better on T4 alone, And there's actually been three meta-analyses comparing T4 alone to T4 plus T3, concluding that the majority of people feel better on T4 alone. Here's where things get murky. There have been some studies showing that people feel better on T4 plus T3. But what this appears to be is a small subset of people, maybe 15% of the population, that has a potentially a polymorphism or just inefficiency in their deiodinase um, enzymes which convert, which help with cleaving off iodines from the um, so T4 is tetraiodothyronine, right? So there's, there's your body has to convert that to T3. To T3, right? so okay. you need these deiodinase you have to cleave off an iodine to kind of make that conversion. And so some people have poor function of that enzyme, so they're poor converters of T4 into T3. And so these people may do best when you give them T4 plus T3 because they have a hard time mm-hmm. taking that T4 and converting it to T3. But, and so there, there is evidence to support that. There are studies. You can point to them and say, look, Dr. Russo, this study found that this 50% of people, perhaps in, in one study, felt better on T4 plus T3. Yes. But was that, a, you know, I believe in this particular study, it was a population of people who already fe- didn't feel optimal on T4 alone.
1: So they went through that first step.
4: Exactly. And then you have to also look at the studies showing that there's a fairly high adverse events, mainly of heart palpitations in people who are just inappropriately or or, or, um, in, in, in like a premature fashion put on T4 plus T3. So you want to start someone on T4, see how they do, give your doctor a little bit of time to dial in the dose. Next, I would consider optimizing your gut health because that may fix the problem and then only third and finally essentially what i consider a t4 plus a t3
1: is this because your body uh when you take just t3 you can overdo it easier versus when you take t4 your body will convert kind of what it needs your body has more control over the throttle so to
4: speak because it's going to convert t4 into t3 when you give the t3 you're already giving kind of like the gas right Mm -hmm. And, and so it's much more difficult for the body to choose what it does with that. Cause you're already giving the active form. Got it. How dangerous can this
2: be for somebody like a competitor who's taking this?
4: Well, it's a good question. I haven't looked at long-term safety outcome data. I don't know if there's a lot of great data comparing cause it's, it's really hard to adjudicate, you know, who is taking too much C3 compared to who is not. And then following those people mm-hmm. for years and years and years in a study. But you know, ostensibly increased cardiovascular occurrences would be one of the things that you would see because someone would have a heart rate that's elevated higher than it should be. Um, That would be my main concern would be a cardiovascular complication. Yeah.
1: Some of them would combine it with like, you know, like a stimulant. I want to know,
2: know, are you, are you privy to how uh, Climbuterol affects the thyroid? No, I mean, I'm,
4: I'm assuming they're What's the mechanism of clenbuterol? Do you it's guys? It's a know beta. It's
1: a beta agonist. It's a bronchodilator. Okay,
4: so if it's a, so I believe beta uh, two
1: agonist. I believe.
4: I'm really reaching back into some of my physio. I believe it's adrenal hormones actually that turn up the sensitivity of your catecholamine receptors. So I'm not. I'm not sure how thyroid ties in, but I want to say thyroid does also have an effect.
2: I know it ties in. I just don't know how. That's yeah, why I'm asking it, you. It, I thought maybe you might yeah, have it, more. It, it may be through receptor
4: sensitivity, but I'm, I'm not sure if I'm confusing that with adrenal hormones. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure.
2: Mm.
1: Oh, well, I, I mean, I know that just again, through friends and stuff, people who competed naturally did terrible when they would take thyroid uh, pre-contest because they'd lose muscle. They'd lose muscle and body fat, but they'd lose muscle. Right. It was the guys that were on shit tons of gear who could preserve muscle that then would go on thyroid and get yeah, and get rid. But then these are people, they don't give a shit. About, I mean, they're not really caring about long-term effects. It's like, does it work? Right. You know, type of deal. Right.
2: Well, I'm going to put that on for your homework because it's a very popular drug that's used yep. in the competitive world. Uh, I mean, If, if you if, shoot me an email, I can find you the answer to that. Yeah. I'm sure. just curious. I know <clears throat> there is some effect. Um, I've, I've experienced it firsthand myself. Um It's extremely popular in the men's physique, women's bikini, bodybuilding world as far as part of a protocol when it's time to get shredded is to add in clombuterol. And, I mean, of all the things that I've... Plus, plucked, plus T3 or just cl- Climbuterol? Just Climbuterol, although some are taking T3 and gotcha. um, uh But I, I do know that it's it's widely used. And of all the things that I've messed with, it's one of the ones that, holy shit, that I feel it more than anything else, which always raises a flag for me. Like, if my body yeah. feels, is telling me, your heart's pounding like crazy, I'm sweating just sitting still in a chair. like right. Yeah. and Yeah, it, yeah so when, it, when I start, when I feel uh, physiological things like that, uh, with, like I said, all the things that I have taken, it makes me right away think like, holy shit, what could this potentially be doing? Right. Um, you want
1: to so, have a lot of fun, look into the pharmacology of the shit that these competitors take. You'll, you'll have, a, sure it's you'll nuts. have a great oh, yeah. DNP and all kinds of weird, <laughs> weird crap. So what, no, what's, the, what's the feedback been like from your space? Because you're, you're kind of treading on, uh, a lot of golden gooses. I, I cause yeah. I know I, I follow your space quite closely Right. And, um, they, for a while there, I haven't seen it so much maybe recently, but for a while there, it was all about thyroid antibodies and your thyroid hormones normal, but you're Mm -hmm. still hypothyroid. It was like a big deal for a while.
4: Yeah. And uh, unfortunately I think that's, it's helped some people. Yes. I think what's been helpful Mm -hmm. is bringing awareness to thyroid antibodies in part as a predictive measure, like we talked about to predict hypothyroidism and also therapies like diets and uh, vitamin supplementation that can help to decrease those antibodies. That's been helpful. But the problem is there's been such an overreach in terms of how important those things are, Mm -hmm. the the prognosis that's associated with that. And as another example, how strictly someone has to be gluten-free or how to interpret those lab values. So There's been some good that's come of that, but a lot of that I think has been way, way over extrapolated. And unfortunately I think it, it may have done more harm than good. It depends on the person, right? For someone who was on a T4 only medication and they needed to be on T4 plus T3, that information for them is probably going to be a home run. So that's mm-hmm. great. And for someone who was eating like crap and their endocrinologist said, well, the only thing we can do is leave with their and they went on a gluten free diet and they happen to be sensitive to gluten. That's a home run. Mm-hmm. Right. But the problem is that those situations aren't necessarily the majority. And that nuance is being left out where it's everyone has to do this mm-hmm. all the time. Um, so how it's being received, I think, depends on who you ask, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for some of the doctors in our group, you know, there's most namely two medical doctors, one who just completed his residency and one's been in practice for a few years, who've been, you know, emailing me quite regularly saying, you know, this this stuff needs to get out there more. This, I mean, I'm seeing this all the time. This is really disappointing. Um, I mean, one of these guys is... is You know, I get a text from him every every once in a while, just venting. He's like, "Jesus Christ, like, why why is this?" I'm a pretty mild mannered guy, and he's and he's saying, "He's like, but I get so pissed off when I see this."
2: Why why is this? Is there is there a a money motivation here? I mean, are are the are the doctors making a kickback kickback on recommending these drugs? Like, why Mm -hmm. or is it laziness? What I mean, what do you what do you think?
4: Yeah, I, I think it's people people have a hard time being objective. You know, I've, I've...
2: Yeah, especially in the medical community.
4: It, it just, it amazes me how people, two different people can look at evidence and come away with totally different conclusions. And do you guys know Jonathan Haidt? Do you follow him at all in Mm-mm. the political space? Mm-mm. Oh, if you like Jordan Peterson, I think Jonathan Haidt's like the next Jordan Peterson. Okay. Um, really? Really brilliant psychologist. And he, he discusses something known as motivated reasoning. And he uses a, a great example of students in a PhD program... I've heard this, I think. Yeah. Uh, Students in a PhD program are supposed to review the methods of a study and assess flaws in the methods of the study. Now, the study conclusion that they're evaluating... Yeah, there he is. The study conclusion that he's evaluating or that these students are evaluating is is coffee consumption in women increases risk of breast cancer. That's not a thing, just for the audience, but that's what this fictitious study that these students thought they were evaluating for methodology flaws we're looking at. And they found that women who were coffee drinkers found far more flaws in the study design than of anybody course. else. And height uses that example of, a, of, of motivated reasoning, meaning mm-hmm. two different people can look at data and come away with different conclusions based upon what their motivations are. Right.
2: We're all biased in some sense.
4: Right. And so I think for people who are really motivated by the thyroid camp, they they will see perhaps some of the evidence that I was showcasing that counters their point of view and they'll just sweep it under the rug. Mm. For me, I, I just, I don't care, right? I, I don't give a shit. I, I care about what works. Or or you could argue you do really care and that's why. Yeah, I guess I should say, I don't care about what I think I know. Right. But when I approach things, I never hear this little voice like, "Ooh, that's got to be wrong because I think this, you know, the voice is more so like, hmm, that's interesting. Is there more data like that? Okay, let me look at all that in one pile. Let me look at all the data that contradicts that in another pile. Let me weigh these piles and then let me re-evaluate or re-establish what my conclusion is. Right. But so many people, it seems, have a hard time doing that. Well, I mm. think
1: in in that space in particular, you have I've, – I've seen this in the fitness space as well where you have the wellness side where if anything that's not natural is bad in their eyes, anything that's right. not organic is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't matter what it is. It's, 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 as long as it's natural, it's fine, even though sometimes – Natural things uh, can be worse for you than a synthetic thing. This is quite true. And so I think in your space with these progressive, integrative, functional medicine practitioners, they're trying really hard to counter conventional medicine. And they're trying so hard that they're looking for, maybe they may be looking for ghosts when they're not there and they're finding them and they're like, oh, okay. uh, This person is hypothyroid and here's why, because this is a little off, even though the data may not and I, and I was so anyway. and I
4: was that way for a little while and you know I should also say Adam maybe one of the things that contributes to that biasness is a lot of people may not have the time to do the evidence checking mm-hmm. right i'm fortunate in the sense that i've set up my life where a few days a week it's my job to check this stuff
2: yeah i feel like a lot of doctors mm. that i've met they they did all their schooling to get to the level of knowledge that they have and that a lot of them stop and they just go into right. practicing after that where it's rare for me but and they they exist but you you it's rare to meet the ones that are constantly reading the new information the right. new studies that could potentially contradict a lot of the information they've been saying for a long time exactly
4: exactly and then regarding the thyroid antibodies we should touch on that also because that is an important aspect of this this whole picture like we talked about if you have elevated thyroid antibodies, it does increase your risk of becoming hypothyroid. Now, how much? Not a ton, mm-hmm. right? The, the one study in, in Tehran that was a long-term follow-up showed about a 10 to 20, specifically 9 to 19% um, incidence of people becoming hypothyroid when they had thyroid autoimmunity, but the levels of antibodies are important. So, there's really two antibodies that are used to assess hypothyroidism. There's TPO, thyroperoxidase, and TG, thyroglobulin. The best data we have, the most well-understood marker, is the TPO. So I'll, I'll just refer to that one. And most labs cut off TPO, meaning you should not be above 35. So there's there's another area of debate where do we look at someone who has 78 the same as someone who has 1,224, Mm
3: -hmm.
4: in an incorrect paradigm, I would say, yes, you look at those exactly the same. In the correct paradigm, I would say that it's just like blood sugar, where if your blood sugar is 101 or your blood sugar is 181, there's a big difference in the talk you're going to have with someone with those two different blood sugar readings, right? So this is another important thing for patients to be aware of because If this conversation is mishandled, you could have a pretty good score on your TPO antibodies and not be aware of it and be made to think that you have a major inflammatory problem that could potentially do you harm in the future. So while all the data here aren't totally definitive, I think it's fair to say that if you have a TPO antibody below 300 to 500, you're at minimal risk for progression to overt hypothyroidism because remember that's one of the things we're trying to suss out which is I have these antibodies how at risk am I given a certain level of antibodies for becoming hypothyroid in the future Mm -hmm. and there was one study that was very good that looked at this that found if thyroid antibodies were below 500 the risk of progressing to hypothyroidism was minimal But if you're above 500, you had a moderate risk. And I would argue that if you're above 1,000, you have an even higher risk. Um, So that's important. Now, one of the counter arguments that's often made against that point is, what about the studies showing that people with thyroid antibodies of 100 or 200 or 300, these like lower level antibodies, are associated with depression and a lack of well-being? So that is true and that does exist. So that's why I say...
1: Yeah, but w- it could be a chicken or the egg thing going w- on there too. I- exactly.
4: And, and, and so that's why I, I say, and I kind of leave the door open, that we want to be below 300 to 500 in terms of progression to di- you know, overt hypothyroidism. But also to your point, it, it could be chicken or the egg, or it could be that even those low level of antibodies cause some sort of inflammation in the brain that doesn't lead you to become overtly hypothyroid, but may cause problems with mood. Now, the good news is-
1: Well, depression has been strongly connected to- to, Inflammation. Yeah.
4: Now, the good news is is that when you look at some of these dietary trials, people tend to have a lot higher scores of subjective well-being and quality of life when they go on a paleo-like diet. There's also some evidence showing that selenium, which can lower thyroid antibodies, may improve quality of life. So just because there may be an association with these low level of antibodies with mood- doesn't mean that we've got to try to force your antibodies down to below 35 because as I've observed there are many people who will feel fantastic like like Laura as an example I don't believe Laura's thyroid antibodies ever got into the quote-unquote normal range but she was in the low hundreds and she lost weight halved her thyroid dose medication had less joint pain and better skin Hmm. uh, and was sleeping better so you have to be careful with that because, and this by far in a way is the one post on my website that has gotten the most comments. You know, I, I, I lay out meticulously in the post, you know, you want to be below 300 to 500. If you're below 300 to 500, you're in good shape. If you're above it, then you should go through some of these treatments, XYZ listed out to help lower your thyroid antibodies. Yet I get so many comments my thyroid antibodies are 284. What should I do? (laughs) Like everyone just, you know, commenting in with their antibody levels. And really, again, if you're below 300 to 500 and you're feeling well, you're done. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you're at any level of antibody and you're not feeling well, take some steps. Mm -hmm. And if you're above 300 to 500, then take some additional steps reasonably to lower your antibodies. Do all you can reasonably do But if you
3: aren't able to get them down any further, let's say you're stuck at 600 and you're feeling well, don't sweat it. So if it does like progress to hypothyroidism, there are steps you can take even when on medication you could actually um, really get back to uh, addressing that through nutrition, through lifestyle. Well, if say you're clinically diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm is that a death sentence like you said in the beginning or is there is there steps that you can take to be, to then Reverse bring it. you back to balance mm. i think it
4: depends on how hypothyroid you were mm. so first let me say that being hypothyroid in my opinion is one of the best conditions you can have
1: it's one of the easily most easy yeah, to it, treat it,
4: it really is i'd mu- i'd take that all day compared to some sort of neurodegenerative condition, of course. right? So it's not the worst thing in the world, firstly. I would say that's a pretty good deck to have in your, your hand. We've been able or, to treat that to for decades. Hand. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, it's not to diminish that, but again, that, that's, that's a pretty good one to get if you're going to have something. Now, this is more so my inference, but I think there is some data to support this. It depends if you can become you know, on hypothyroid, normal thyroid, after being diagnosed hypothyroid, it depends on how so skewed your, your levels. So if your TSH was, let's say, eight and your free T4 was low, I think there's a decent chance if your TSH got up to 88, right, or 125, like it does in some cases, I think the probability is less. You could still run the experiment of coming off your hormone for six to eight weeks and then retesting and seeing where your levels are. But the—and the, the and actually, I'm sorry, there is evidence that, that has answered this question. The severity of TSH elevation and the severity of the antibody elevation does dictate the prognosis. So the higher antibodies were at time of diagnosis and the higher TSH and lower your T4 were at the time of diagnosis— you know either the the better or the worse of prognosis that you'll be able to come off the medication now,
1: you know? Rusio is Hashimoto's diagnosed through TPO? Well, I think there's actually some debate
4: there also. Um, I think the most firm way to make the diagnosis is to look for antibodies and then confirm with an ultrasound. okay. I don't think everyone is doing that way and, and really, there, and there there may be some nuance there that i'm that I'm not aware of in in terms of I'm assuming if I looked we'd find perhaps general agreement in in diagnostic methodology, but maybe one or two endocrinology bodies that have a slightly different methodology. But um, TPO is the most classic marker. Um, Can you diagnose Hashimoto's with TPO alone? I think you're pretty safe to be able to do that, but I I think some would like to see that confirmed with a thyroid ultrasound. Hmm. Um, And then the thyroid globulin antibodies can also be used. But um, the reason the thyroid ultrasound may be... What are, they, what are they looking for? Just a like goiter? So you know, you're you're looking typically for what's known as hypoechogenicity, meaning a reduced... So the ultrasound is like a, a wave right. pulse. And the density of the tissue will either allow... So if you knocked... The thing you had like this arm wire with no clothes that it was empty. And you knocked on it, you'd have its hollow, hollow echo. But if that was filled with clothes, there wouldn't be that echo because there's all this density in there. So there's, mm-hmm. there's no open space to reverberate the echo. So if you have hypoechogenicity, you have a low amount of echo because scar tissue has infiltrated the gland. Got it. And that scarred gland can't produce as much hormone. The reason why I think some bodies may, and again, I could be wrong on this point, but may want to see confirmatory ultrasound to confirm the antibodies, is antibodies are not perfect. They can sometimes cross-react or other things can, for example, certain viruses can cause false positives of antibodies. So you, know, you can probably start with the antibodies and then follow up with an ultrasound if you want to be super cautious in terms okay. of the diagnosis. diagnosis. Okay. And I'm sorry, remember that one study we were talking about that found that your length of time on thyroid hormone did not dictate if you'd be able to come off. Right. The, one of the findings that did correlate to would you be able to come off or not was the thyroid finding, the thyroid ultrasound findings. Mm. So, so those, scar tissue. Those who had scar tissue had a lower probability of being able to come off the medication. Of course. Hmm. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, good times again, man. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that was a great one. That was great.
2: No, 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 good conversation. I I mean, it was crazy that you reached out when you did because literally, like maybe a week or two. And I don't know if I told you that or not before that, but Cassie, who handles all of our customer service on the backside, uh, was actually asking us to do a video or an episode strictly on thyroid because she's getting so much. Right oh, good. now, yeah. yeah. Good. So it was when you said that I was like, "Oh, that's crazy that you're getting well, a bunch of questions
3: out there." Yeah, the right it, it, we're,
2: that we're also we're seeing an influx right now on our end. And she was asking for more content that she could share uh, to our audience that was reaching out to her on help and questions about it. So
4: good. Well, you know, I'm glad to be able to offer this, and you know, I, I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm disparaging the field. I think the field's done a lot of good, but some of these things now. Are getting out of hand. And I think they're all done in attempts to help people, but it's one of the problems with progressivism where if you're too progressive, then there's a probability where you're you're going to believe things that aren't fully true. And if you do that in the health and medical space, you can subject people to diagnoses or treatments they don't actually need and harm them. So, Mm. you know, I think this is a natural part of the evolution of the field where there's going to be this push and pull. And I think the push to get people to understand about thyroid antibodies and how that can be used predictively to dictate risk and how diet and nutrition can be used to manage and improve thyroid function is awesome. But we've gotten a little bit overzealous there and now we have to pull back a little bit. And that's what I'm hoping to kind of present to people and give them a little bit more of a responsible and nuanced view. Excellent.
1: Mm -hmm. First, do no harm. That's right. Exactly.
0: Excellent. Yeah, All right, man. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, bro. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to Mind Pump. If your goal is to build and shape your body, dramatically improve your health and energy, and maximize your overall performance, check out our discounted RGB super bundle at mindpumpmedia.com.